Hebrews, Hebrews, book of Hebrews, great book. We're going to spend the next several months looking at Hebrews, next couple months probably looking at Hebrews. And it's a book written, written to Hebrews. They're Jewish Christians. And it's, it's in probably about the 60s. We know that because they're still talking in the book about animal sacrifices. So the temple hadn't been torn down yet. The temple is going to be burned to the ground. And animal sacrifice is going to stop at 70 AD when, when the general Titus comes in and levels the city of Jerusalem. So this is pre-70 AD, written in the 60s probably, 60s AD, to Jewish Christians. Do you know the church started with Jewish Christians? Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jewish. The church in Acts chapter 2 where it was Jewish primarily of, in the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, there was a dilemma going on. What was happening was many of these Jewish Christians during the 60s were starting to face mass persecution as Jewish Christians. They were being persecuted by the Roman government. They were being persecuted by the religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders that didn't like that they were coming to Christ. They were even being persecuted by their own family members. They were being ostracized by family members that were Jewish that disowned them because they came to Christ. So what was happening was some of these Jewish Christians in the first century church in the 60s AD were starting to backslide, back, or not backslide, but go back to their Judaism and rejecting Jesus Christ. They couldn't handle the pressure, the persecution, and they said, we're going back to the old ways. We're going back to the temple. We're going back to the law. We're going back to circumcision. We're going back to the feasts. We're going back to do the legalism. We're, we're just going to go back. It was a lot easier when we were just Jews. They're going back. In the book of Hebrews, we're going to see 12 times, says, no, 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 don't do that. They use the word better 12 times throughout the 13 chapters, saying there's nothing better than Jesus. Nothing better than Jesus Christ. And, and with the emphasis throughout this book is the preeminence, the greatness of Jesus as our high priest, as our Savior, as the one that's died for our sins. And, and what we're going to see throughout this book, there's nothing better than Jesus Christ. Now, what does this have to do with us? 99% of us are not Jewish Christians. We're Gentiles. What does this have to do with us about you know, the book of Hebrews if we're not Hebrews? Well, here's what it has to do with us. We aren't tempted to go back to Judaism, but you know what the devil's goal is for us? It's to get us to go back to our old ways. Devil's goal for us is to get us to go back to the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil's goal for us is to get us to go back to living in the, in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The devil's goal is to get us to go back to the vomit of the world. But if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone the new has come. And we're supposed to continue on in this newness of life. And, we, we, and it's, it's not easy being a Christian in a cursed world, is it? Spiritual warfare. You're in an army. There's a battle going on. And there's a temptation sometimes in all of our lives to go back. Let's just white flag, give up, give in, and go back. The book of Hebrews is going to exhort us all throughout the book. Don't go back. Because church, there's nothing better than Jesus. There's nothing that will meet your soul's needs like Jesus. There's nothing better than the salvation you receive through Jesus Christ. There's nothing better than a life of the Spirit rather than a life of the flesh. There's nothing better than the purpose and the meaning that we get from God's Word in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing better. So what we're going to see in this first chapter is why Jesus is better than, first of all, the prophets, second of all, than the angels. So let's see it. And again, the application for us is there's not a fear of us going back to 
to, to Judaism, there's a few, there, here's, the, here's the goal of the devil again, is to get you back to your old ways. And so we're going to be exhorted throughout this whole time today, and as we get through this book, the greatness of Jesus, and don't go back. Press on to the upward call of God that we each have for each one of our lives. Amen? All right. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. Well, you beat Pastor John. That's good. Okay. It says, verse 1, chapter 1. God, after you spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. Now, first of all, I want you to see here, who's the author of this letter? Well, some people say Paul. I don't think it's Paul. I don't think it's Paul because, and I'll give you my reasoning for it not being Paul. People that are highly respected as Bible teachers say Paul. But Paul, the author of this book, in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 3, says this, How we escape if we neglect so, so great a salvation. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. See, the writer of the book of Hebrews got confirmation of the gospel from the apostles. But Paul said, Galatians chapter 1, verses 12 and th- verse 12 says, For I have neither received this gospel from man nor as I taught it, but I received it through what? A revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a little contradiction there. If that's Paul's writing this letter, he says in, in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says, Hey, I got, we got confirmation from the apostles on this gospel. Paul said, I didn't get confirmation from the gospels. I got it from a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. So who wrote this letter? Well, some people believe it might have been Apollos, who was mighty in the Scriptures. Some people might believe it might have been Luke. Interesting, if Luke wrote this letter, traveling uh, companion with Paul, he wrote almost half the New Testament because he wrote the book of Luke and the uh, Gospel of A- or the book of Acts, too. Some people believe it could have been even Aquila and Priscilla that wrote this book. We, I, I know who wrote the book. You know who wrote the book? The, right in the very beginning, the author is right there. God! It says, God wrote this book. And the reason why I know that is because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is God-breathed. So ultimately, God wrote this book. There's an anonymity to this book, though. And again, I don't think it's Paul, because Paul would begin his letters and his writings with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't begin this with this, because I don't think it was Paul. But, and there's an anonymity, partly, I think, because God wants to know, this book is written by me. And the first thing it says in, here, in this first verse, that not only is God the author of this book, but it also says this, that God spoke long ago, Old Testament times before Christ, B.C., before Christ, God spoke long ago through the prophets. The prophets, who are they? Well, they're the ones that got direct revelation from God and then spoke this way, Thus saith the Lord. And would speak directly to God's people for the voice of God. Prophets, long time ago. We know that Elijah was a prophet. Elisha was a prophet. Uh, We know that many of the books of the Old Testament were written by the prophets. And prophets spoke for God. They were highly revered by the Jewish people, the prophets. But here's the argument at the very beginning here. God spoke long ago through the prophets. But today, today in our present time, in these last days, when are the last days? from the time of Christ's first coming to his second coming, we're in the last days. And in these last days, how has God spoken? Through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, verse 14 says, became flesh and he dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now, interesting, when it says Jesus is the Word, the word word there in the Greek is logos. And you know what it literally means? It means the communication of God. And what it's saying there is if you want God to speak into your life, then the way he speaks in these last days is through the logos. And that's Jesus Christ, the communication of God. I remember when it happened to me. I was a lost teenager. I had, I had people witnessing to me. And they challenged me. The one guy that was really primarily witnessing, he said, you read the Gospel of John, one chapter a night for the next month, and see if God doesn't speak to you. And I said, okay, I'll do it just so you leave me alone. I'll do it. I started reading a chapter a night of the Gospel of John, and he was right. I started learning about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I started learning about the one who said, I and the Father are one. I started learning about the logos. The word became flesh. And I tell you, chapter after chapter, I did it for a whole month. By the end of the month, it was like Jesus became real to me, came alive, and he spoke to me to the point that I came to Christ right after that. Because in these last days, God doesn't speak through prophets. He speaks through Jesus. Now, the prophetic gift is still in place, and there's still words the Lord gives to people prophetically and stuff, but the primary way that God speaks today is through Jesus Christ in his word. Amen? So why is Jesus greater than the prophets? Because he is the vehicle that God in these last days has chosen to spoke through. He's also greater than the prophets. We're going to get on a whole laundry list now of things that makes Jesus greater than the prophets. It says, in these last days he's spoken to us, verse 2, in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. This is the second reason why Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's the heir of all things. What's heir? Inheritor. He's inherited all of God's paradise. He's there right now. He's the inheritor of all things. And here's a cool thing. He's the inheritor of all things, but Romans chapter 8 says once you come to Christ, you become a child of God, adopted into God's family, and then you become a joint heir with Christ. What does that mean? It means you inherit all the stuff that Jesus has already inherited in heaven, in a place that he called paradise. It means that he's gone, John 14, to heaven to prepare a place for you. And can you imagine Jesus, in six days he just spoke the words and all of creation came into being in six days. Can you imagine the glory of the place he's prepared for you for the last 2,000 years? Jesus is a builder, he's a carpenter. He's been working on heaven for 2,000 years and we're going to inherit that with him for the rest of eternity and it's going to be glorious. Again, the promise, Christ in you is the hope of what? Glory. He's the heir of all things, and we are joint heirs with him, verse 2, through whom also he made the world. Second thing we're told about Jesus there, he's the creator of all, he's the heir of all things, but he's also the creator of all things. Did you know that? Did you know that when the planets were being flung out into space, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved with that? Genesis 1 1 says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And listen, the word there for God is Elohim in the Hebrew, and it means plural. It doesn't mean one, it doesn't mean two, it actually means more than two. So who is involved with speaking the word and turning all the lights on? Literally, in Genesis, it says, all they said was, light be, light was. And the sun turned on. And the planets were thrown out in there. The stars, and interesting, the billions of stars, they gave them names. There's a name for every star. And then he breathed into the man. And when he breathed into man, he said, let us make man 
in our image. No, he didn't say, let me make man in my image. He said, let us. Because it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved in creation. That blows my mind. Think about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, a baby. And he's born into his own creation that he created. Divinity in diapers. It's an amazing thing, you know? And then he goes on and he becomes a carpenter and he works in a carpenter's shed and builds doors and barns. And he is the creator of all things. We've got to hold on to that church too because there's a bad theology out there right now. The theology is being perpetuated by some mega church too that basically said Jesus, when he came, he, came, he gave up his divinity and he's, he wasn't God when he was here on earth and we have the same power that Jesus had and we just start, he was just a man. He gave up his divinity when he came to earth. No, he didn't. He's the one that stood on that boat in Galilee and said to the raging sea, he said, hush, be still. And all of creation listened to him and it went to dead calm. He's the one that walked out on that Sea of Galilee. He walked on water because he was the creator of all that. He had total control over creator when he was here in humanity. Divinity took on humanity but didn't give up his divinity. He was the one that spoke to the dead guy because the mom was there, the widow in Cain was there, and her son was dead, and they were having a funeral procession. And Jesus had such compassion on the mom that he reversed creation there and said to the son, rise up. Even though he was part of the funeral, bam, he was risen from the dead. He's the one that touched the leper that had terminal illness. And Jesus said, reverse it. I'm the creator. He doesn't have leprosy anymore. Amazing. 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 Jesus Christ, divinity in diapers, divinity taken on humanity, but he never gave up his divinity because he was the maker of all things. Interesting. Go back to our scripture now. And it says also he made the world, verse 3, and he is the radiance of God's glory. What makes Jesus so great? Now the word radiance there, it doesn't mean the reflection of God's glory. We as human beings, we're the reflection of God's glory. As we behold his glory, he changes us from glory to glory in his image. And then we become the light of the world where we reflect God's glory through our lives into this world. And we're called to do that. Jesus wasn't the reflector, though. He was the glory. He was the radiance of God's glory. The word radiance there means outshining of God's glory. And so when he came to this earth, the God's glory just emanated, emanated from his life. You wonder why when he would go out in the field and preach and teach, thousands of people would come? Because it was the radiance of God's glory. You wonder why even the soldiers that were told to take Jesus or to go after Jesus said, hey, why didn't you go after this man? Because no one has ever spoken like this man because he was the radiance of God's glory. He He was the outshining of God's glory. That's what makes him so great. And then it also says he is now the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. What does that mean? It means if you want to know what God's like, even though no man's ever seen God, we have seen God in the exact representation of God in Jesus Christ. You want to know if, you want to know if God is love? Look at Jesus, who loved all people. Even the prostitute and the demon-possessed girl and the leper and the thieves and the tax collectors. God is love because Jesus is love. You want to know if God is merciful? 
Look at Jesus, who said to the adulterous woman who the religious leaders wanted to stone to death, he said, woman, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. You want to know if God is truth? Look at Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know if God is patient, <laughs> look at Jesus and his interaction with just Peter alone. God is patient. If you want to know if God is forgiving, look at Jesus, the exact representation of God who looked upon people that were killing him and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. Jesus, the exact representation of God in his nature. One time Philip asked Jesus, uh, Jesus, just we're, we're, the mysterious, we're tired of the mis- mysterious of all this stuff you're teaching. The, the, the mystery's too great, Jesus. Je- Jesus, just, just show us the Father. Show us God. It'll be enough. Remember what Jesus said? He said, Philip, in seeing me, you're seeing God. You're seeing the Father. He is the exact representation of God. In his nature. That's why I love Jesus. That's what makes Jesus better than anything else. That's what makes him greater than the prophets, greater than anything else. He's not only that, he's also, it goes on and it says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. What does that mean? It means he's not only the maker of all things, he's the one that holds all things together. And it's a good thing doing some study on that this week. Do you know we're 93 million miles away from the sun? And we're, this, as a planet on, on Earth, we're, we're orbiting around the sun at 93 million miles away. I think about that, and I get vertigo just thinking about that. Uh, how do we spin around like we're spinning around and orbiting around, and we are just all like going like this, you know? But we're 93 million miles away from the sun. If we were one degree further away from the sun, we'd all freeze to death. If we were one degree closer to the sun, we'd all melt to death. Jesus upholds all things. Then you go with a microscope to the atom, and within the atom there's protons, and the protons are all positively charged, and there's multiple protons within the atom. And scientists to this day don't understand how protons that are both positive aren't repelling each other and blowing everything up. And they say there's some kind of atomic glue that's holding all these positive forces together within the atom, and they call it atomic glue, but they don't know what the atomic glue is. I know what the atomic glue is. You know what it is? His name is Jesus. He is holding all things together, including our lives. And here's what I've seen. I've seen when people's lives are falling apart, when they come to Jesus and they finally get it right, and they say, Jesus, I need you to hold my life together. And Jesus, be Lord of my life and hold it. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to be running my own life anymore. I'm going to let you run it. You know what happens? I see over and over again people's lives who have been falling apart and they trust Jesus and allow Jesus to be Lord and their life starts coming together. I see that with our U-turn guys all the time. I see guys that come here that are a mess and then they submit and bow their knee to Jesus Christ and allow Jesus to be Lord and they trust Jesus with all their heart and lean not on their own understanding and start allowing Jesus to direct their lives and their lives all of a sudden start coming together held together. 
My, my main verse I share with guys in U-Turn that come to me for counsel on Wednesday nights during prayer or whatever else, my main verse is Matthew 6.33 that says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. And that's not just for U-Turn, that's for all of us. You know, some people say, well, God's my co-pilot. He ain't my co-pilot, he's my pilot. I don't do a good job driving anything. I allow him to lead, and I get just in the, I'm a passenger. He's, he's flying the plane for me, man. And as I allow him to lead, <clears throat> my life is blessed. My life is directed. My life is held together. And then when I get back to trying to do it all myself, and I don't let him be Lord, and I just wreck my own life, it, it's like a runaway train towards a brick wall. Bam! But then I get back. Jesus, take the wheel. You be Lord. I trust you, Lord. I'm going to live for you. My whole life's held together, and it's wonderful. Amen? Amen. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's better than anything, because he, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then he goes on and says, and when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. And I, another thing that makes Jesus great, he's a purifier of our sin. The word purification there means this. It means washing and cleansing. And it's interesting, what it's saying there is that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for us, if you look to him for salvation, he will purify your life. He'll wash your life. He'll cleanse your life from some of your sin. What does it say there? All. When he died on the cross, he said, paid in full. Wonderful. I love Jesus so much because he died for me and he forgave me of all my sin. And I remember that also. I remember coming to Christ in February 1978, station wagon of my young life leader, finally getting this thing that Jesus died on the cross for me. And if I open my heart to Christ and I receive him as my Savior, my Lord, here's what's going to happen, I was told. You will be forgiven of all your sin and you'll go to heaven instead of hell and you'll have a Savior that will be with you for the rest of your life. And I did that. I did exactly that. And I understood it for the very first time. I asked Jesus to my heart. I said, Jesus, I'm sorry. I admit my sin. I trust you to be my Savior. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. And I'll never forget, 40 years ago, it was like yesterday. I remember it was like this load of condemnation and guilt just lifted from my shoulders. And I was washed. I was cleansed. And I didn't have condemnation anymore. I didn't have guilt anymore. I had forgiveness. It was amazing. And life was so much better. Better. Because Jesus purified me from all my sin. And I tell you what, there's nothing better than that. Our greatest need as human beings is forgiveness. And when you come to Christ and he purifies you from all your sin... And you understand that truth of Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, it's refreshing. It's healing. It's wonderful. And it's, what's, it's what makes Jesus great. Because he paid in full and purified us from all our sin. Notice where he's at now, too. He's at, after he purified us from our sin, after he died on the cross. Where's he at right now? Where's his location? He's at the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing? He's sitting. That's interesting to me. 
Why is he sitting? Because he's done with his work. You guys know what I'm talking about here. Long day at work. Stressed out. Been charging all day long. You get home. Then you get, you, get, you get this great dinner. Your wife cooks you a great dinner. You get all this food in your belly. What do you do after that? Go back to work? No, most of you are like me. You, you, you got your chair, don't you? I call it the John Hoppy recliner. And everybody knows, even when my kids come over, they know, they know whose chair that is. And they know that after a hard day's work and a good dinner, I'm going to find the chair. And I'm, I, I tell you what, lately Heidi and I have been, you know, we've been doing this Netflix thing where you're kind of binging on a network, Netflix show and there's this great show we're watching, it's called Heartland and it's a show that's up in the Canadian mountains and there's, these girls are, and this whole family's running this horse ranch and it's awesome and it's a great show, but it's kind of a girly show a little bit. And Heidi loves it. I like it too. It's a good show, but I'll get a good dinner in me after working hard and counseling or preparing a message or meeting with people during the day, and I'll have this good dinner from Heidi. I'll get in that recliner, and I tell you what, after about 10 minutes, I'm resting. And I'm watching that show through the back of my eyelids. And I, I get it. Every night we're watching the show, and I get a good nap in. It's awesome. And I'm just resting. That's the position of Jesus right now. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's resting. And you know why he's resting? Because the work is done. He's paid in full for all of our sins. And he's at the right hand of the Father and he's sitting down. Now, we've seen why Jesus is greater than the prophets. Now let's see why he's greater than the angels. Again, angels are like prophets in the the, uh, Hebrew culture. They were revered, they were respected, they were honored and rightfully so. Angels were the ones that uh, delivered the law we see throughout the Old Testament. Angels uh, were numerous, numerous occasions throughout the Old Testament. We see angelic appearances to God's people. And angels, the word actually means messenger. They delivered messages to God's people throughout the Old Testament. And they also protected. Do you remember the one story of Elijah when he was being surrounded by the enemies of God? The servant was freaking out. What are we going to do, Elijah? And Elijah said, look up at the mountains. And he looked up the mountains and he had heavenly insight to see there was thousands and thousands of angels protecting God's people on that occasion. And then another situation, the Assyrians were battling the Israelites and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed in one night by one angel. Angels were mighty throughout the Old Testament. We also know from the book of Matthew, when Jesus returns, Matthew tells us he's going to return with the host of heaven, with angels, to establish his kingdom here on earth. Angels are powerful. They're numerous. And they were respected and revered throughout the Old Testament. But we're going to see the argument now why Jesus is even greater than the angels. And let's see what it says here. It says, having become as much better, verse 4, than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is greater than the angels because his name is greater than the angels. What's Jesus' name? Jesus means Jehovah's salvation. And it says in Philippians chapter 2 that at Jesus' name, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how great his name is. He has got the name above all names. And he's greater than the angels because his name is more excellent than they 
And then it also says in verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Jesus is greater than the angels because his name is above the angels, but also he's greater because he is the only begotten son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but what he have through the only begotten son, eternal life. And then he also says, and when, again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, another thing that makes Jesus great is he's the firstborn. Now, careful with that. Does that mean Jesus was created? Does it mean he was born? No. The, the, the term firstborn was, was in the Hebrew culture was the firstborn was the preeminent heir. He was the one that ran the family with the father. He was the one that gained the most of the inheritance. That's Jesus' position. He is preeminent. He's running the family of God with the Father as the firstborn. And then it also says he's not only the firstborn, but he also says, let all the angels of God worship Jesus. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers ministers a flame of fire. Now, another thing it says that makes Jesus greater than the angels is because the angels do what to Jesus? They worship Jesus. That's wonderful. We know from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it says there's myriads of myriads around the throne of God worshiping the Father and the Son, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they're also singing this, worthy is the Lamb who was slain for our sins. Jesus is greater than the angels because there's myriads of myriads of angels all throughout heaven worshiping him and the Father. Now, question, what's a myriad? 10,000. And, and when it says there's myriads uh, uh, and myriads of angels worshiping Jesus, it's literally in the Greek, it's 10,000 times 10,000 angels worshiping Jesus. Do your math. What's 10,000 times 10,000? A lot. I like that. <laughs> literally, it's 100 million angels just around the throne of God worshiping Jesus and the Father. Jesus is greater than the angels because the angels worship him. He doesn't worship them. And then it goes on after it says that there's myriads of angels or there's angels worshiping Jesus. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and thy righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Now look at what makes Jesus great also. Verse 9, thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee, thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. You know what makes Jesus so great too? He loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. You know, Jesus was the only man that ever lived who never sinned. We're going to learn that when we get to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things such as we are, yet he was without sin. You ever think about that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine being one of Jesus' brothers or sisters and growing up with this guy? Talking about a firstborn and he was the oldest kid in the family, trying to, trying to follow that act? I mean, Jesus never had terrible twos. Because he was never terrible. Jesus never disobeyed his parents. Jesus never did the wrong thing. Jesus never stole anything. Jesus never lied. Jesus never did anything hurtful. He, Jesus was without sin. 
He loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. And notice the correlation there. Because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, there was an oil of gladness that anointed his life. Jesus said, I've spoken these words unto you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. And you know what, church, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Holiness leads to happiness. You want more joy in your life? Love righteousness and hate lawlessness. The lie of the devil is you're missing out. The lie of the devil is God's restricting you with all these rules and everything else like that. No, no, no. God's commandments are not burdensome. They're to bless you. To give you a life not only of meaning and purpose, but a life of joy. I've never been more happy in my life as a Christian than when I'm obeying God. And when I'm seeking for his his kingdom and his righteousness and I'm firing on all eight cylinders and I'm doing the right thing, again, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to struggle. I'm going to battle with sin just like you are. But when I'm getting it right and I'm living according to God's word, that's the happiest state I'm in as as a human being because when I love righteousness and hate lawlessness, the oil of God's gladness anoints my life too. And one of the reasons why I love teaching you God's word, church, is because this book equips us in righteousness. And as you're equipped in righteousness, and you're not just learning this thing, you're living it, you're going to have the oil of gladness anoint your life too. He's, he's spoken these things to us, that his joy might be in us, and our joy might be full. Amen, church? Amen. That's what makes him great. It's without sin. He loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Let's close it up now. And then it says in verse 10, And thou, O Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens and the works of thy hands, and they will perish. But God, or Jesus, thou remainest. And thou all, they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, again his location, at my right hand, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Now this is fast forwarding. It's fast forwarding past our time. It's fast forwarding to the, the millennial rule of Christ when he's going to reign on this earth for a thousand years with his scepter. And he's going to fulfill the prayer we're supposed to pray. Thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Christ comes back with his scepter, his iron scepter, he's going to reign. It's not going to be a democracy. It's going to be a theocracy. Theo being God. God is going to reign, and he is going to come back. And on his side, the book of Revelation says, when he comes back, on his side, it's going to be written, King of kings, and what? Lord of lords. And he's going to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. And what he's going to do then, at the end of the thousand years, he's going to have the, the, the white throne of judgment. And he's going to judge all the dead and all those that have rejected him. And then Satan himself is going to be thrown in the lake of fire. And then after that, he's going to roll up the creation like a garment. And he's going to start all over again. And it says in Second Peter chapter 3, even the elements will melt. And he's going to destroy the heavens and and the earth and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where his righteousness will dwell forever and ever and to that I say hallelujah and I say Maranatha Lord let's get her done Lord come quickly 
I'm ready for your kingdom here on earth. I'm ready to reign with you for a thousand years. I'm ready to see you to create a whole new kingdom, a whole new heaven and a whole new earth where your righteousness will dwell forever and ever. And that's coming. And that's what makes Jesus so great. There's a great future. Hey, the best is yet to come for those that follow Christ. He is going to do it in such a way that we're going to see Garden of Eden recreated here on earth for a thousand years. And then... He's going to destroy. No question. Why is he going to destroy heaven? I thought heaven's heaven. Why would he destroy heaven? Because still to this day, Satan has access to heaven. It says in Revelation 12, Satan is standing before the throne of God, accusing brethren night and day. But we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and that we don't love our life even unto death. And so, there's coming a day he's going to destroy even heaven because he wants to do a total do-over of everything. We have that to look forward to. Now, he closes up this chapter with a, give a little credit to the angels. And look at the last verse of chapter 1. It says, Are they not all, talking about angels, ministering spirit, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What's the purpose of angels according to that verse? To serve Christians. And how, does he, how, does, how do angels in the angelic realm serve us? Interesting. Psalm 91 says, angels are given charge concerning us to guard us in all our ways. I think some of you have experienced that. I know I have. I remember a motorcycle ride home one time on my motorcycle from Springfield, Illinois to Chicago, and I hit major thunderstorms, and I'd spent an hour or two just sitting under a bridge on a major highway, and in my impatience, I said, I'm not going to wait any longer, and I drove through the night through a thunderstorm to get back to Chicago. And I remember I was hydroplaning on the motorcycle. And I'm, I, to this day, I believe there's angels keeping that bike up for the next two hours to get me home. And I think if I gave a testimony right, time right now, you could probably get up on the stage and talk about times where you had literal angelic experience where you knew something was saving your life and protecting you too. Angels are given charge concerning us to guard us in all our ways. But listen, they also guard us not just physically, they guard us spiritually. Did you know that? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. There's spiritual warfare for every Christian. And a part of what angels do is they're in the heavenlies fighting battles for us. One of my favorite pictures in our home right now is uh, in a hallway right by our kids' rooms. Used to walk by it all the time when I walked to our kids' rooms to pray for them or say goodnight to them. It's a picture, it's a print by James Dobson of a father. And the father's with his son in the son's bedroom, and he's laying hands on his son while he's sleeping, and he's praying for his son. And then outside the window of this bedroom, there's angels and there's demons, and they're battling for the son. You know what that tells us? Parents, be praying for your kids. Because there's forces out there that want to destroy not only us, they want to destroy our kids. And we need to be praying for angelic forces to protect, to guard, and to fight battles spiritually on behalf of our kids. Amen? So what did we learn this morning? We learned that nothing is greater or better than Jesus. Amen? And we learned this morning that there's no reason going back to anything else but Jesus will help us or bring meaning or purpose because there's nothing better than Jesus. We learned all throughout this chapter amazing things about Jesus Christ. We learned that the main primary way that God speaks today is through his son. 
We learned today, too, that Jesus is greater than the prophets because he's the heir of all things. He's the inheritor of all things. He's the maker of the world. He's the radiance, the outshining of God's glory. He's the one that holds all things together by the word of his power. He's the purifier from sin. He's the one that's sitting at the right hand of the Father. We've learned he's the only begotten Son. We, we learned that he's the firstborn in the world and he's preeminent. We learned that the angels of God worship him. We learned that his throne is forever and ever and he is God. And not only that, we learned that he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And we learned too that the angels themselves in heaven are worshiping Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is greater in this area, I want to encourage you all. Don't go to the empty cisterns of this world for anything in regards to meaning or purpose. Because Jesus said, if you drink of that water, you're going to thirst again. But if you come to me and look to me, I'll be the living water. And out of your innermost being will, will flow rivers of, of life. Jesus said to that, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Take your, my yoke upon me and learn from me. For in me you'll find rest for your souls. Don't go to the emptiness of the stuff of this world because nothing, nothing. Let me say it a little bit louder. Nothing! That wake you up? Nothing. 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 Is greater or better than Jesus. Let's pray.